Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. Today, you're about to listen to one of our specials, the broadcasting of live events that we hosted here in Austin. In this case, it is a very special one, or more than one. It's a part of a series. In late November, as you might already know, the Austin Institute hosted journalist and author Sora Bamari. While with us, Amari gave a talk at the University Catholic Center where he talked about his personal story, his journey to the faith, and the dangers of our contemporary culture and its wokeism with Father Jonathan Rea. On the following day, he discussed three chapters of his latest book, The Unbroken Thread, with three of our scholars and senior fellows, Professor Jay Budzicewski, Professor Robert Kuhns, and Professor Margaret Merritt. We are now releasing those conversations on our podcast, and you can find them on our YouTube channel, too. As you enjoy the conversations, remember that all these events are possible thanks to your generous donations. Today, you're about to listen to the second episode of the series, Is God Reasonable? and Today's Relevance of Thomas Aquinas, a conversation between UT Professor of Government and Philosophy and Senior Fellow of the Austin Institute, Jay Wojciechowski, and author Sora Bomari. Enjoy. The Lone Star State played a role in my ultimate conversion to Roman Catholicism, and yet this is the first time I've returned to it um, since those events. So it's very special to be with you. And I want to especially thank Mariana. She, um, you know, she, as, as the schedule for my visit developed, she was like, and by the way, there'll be a drinks with the fellows, and by the way, there'll be another thing. And she keeps you know, saying at, everyone, at, the, at the end of each one, oh, thank you, I'm so sorry for making the time. And it makes it seem like it's like an imposition on me. In fact, they've been such a joy. It's been such a joy to meet, for example, the, the young professionals last night. So it's not at all an imposition. The, the conversations are wonderful, their enthusiasm, your enthusiasm. So thank you very much for, that, uh, for this opportunity. So in each of these discussions, my thought was not um, to begin by um, recapitulating the entire chapter and trying to summarize what each chapter in the book argues, but rather giving you a kind of background or a sort of um, background story of how I chose the, the, the question in particular and the figure that I used to illustrate the conceptual material. And um, just to very briefly tell you about the book for those who haven't read it, it's a, it's a book of 12 unasked questions. And um, each question, pokes at one of our modern certainties, one of our kind of ideological uh, issues that we just take for granted or con convictions that we just take, take for granted and questions that <clears throat> our society tells us are no longer worth asking or exploring because, for example, um, natural science has supplanted these questions um, or supplanted the old answers that we used to give to them, so what's the point of asking the questions or to seek the older answers? Um, and uh, the, the first question that we're going to address today is, is God reasonable? And what I really try to do there is something kind of really embarrassingly simple, and therefore it's a, I'm almost a little bit embarrassed to be up here with Jay, who has written commentaries on um, an, an, an vast swaths of the, of, of the Thomistic corpus. And here I am. All I want to establish is that there is this older account of reason that encompasses the things of God, right? That faith is not just um, a matter of feelings or stirrings in the heart, although it, it absolutely entails those things as well, 
but, can, but also does in fact touch upon reason and that there are aspects of faith that can be um, explored, debated, and even um, uh, be answered using natural reason alone, just uh, the, the, the human mind. And that's all I try to do. Um, uh, it's a case for a reason, an account of reason that's capacious enough to include the things of faith and the things of God. The background to this and the figure who hovers behind this chapter yet is never explicitly mentioned, he's in the footnotes, but uh, is not explicitly mentioned in the chapter, is actually Pope Benedict XVI. Um, I um, consider his Regensburg address to be the most, the greatest uh, papal teaching of the third millennium so far. And it been, it's been very influential in forming my own thinking. And those of you who read the chapter, the second chapter of the book, Is God Reasonable, will see his influence throughout that chapter, even though he's not mentioned. Obviously, I read the, um, the, the address when it first was, uh, became public and was suddenly the cause of this enormous controversy across the world. It set off a global firestorm. And it happened to be that just then, the world was grappling with a variety of unreasonable faith, right? So Islamist extremism, the aftermath of 9-11, of, of, uh, the, the Madrid train bombings and so forth. This was the backdrop to Pope Benedict's um, address. And I, okay, I read it at the time and it, it certainly went over my head, but what I, um, returning to it years later, and I read it again in depth as I was preparing to write The Unbroken Thread, and I happened to be actually traveling with a kind of a journalist's junket where we were following the po Pope Francis as he was visiting Abu Dhabi as the first Roman pontiff to ever step foot on the, on the Arabian Peninsula. So there was something very poignant where I was reading Benedict um, and the Regensburg Address about faith, reason, Islam, and Christianity as uh, Pope Francis was right there, you know, sitting next to the Sheikh of Al-Azhar, and they were having this, this debate on uh, uh, trying to forge a brotherhood of, uh, between people of, people of faith. And um, so obviously it was a profoundly misunderstood document. It was far from being a crude harangue against Islam. Um, it was um, uh, a, a defense of that older account of reason in which uh, the things of God and um, uh, issues of faith could be explored. And, um, and what Pope Benedict was really targeting, although there were elements of, of unreason in Islam that he points out, what he was really targeting is a much more pinched account of reason that emerges um, with the modern world, or you could say that inaugurates the modern world in which quote unquote reason only involves uh, seeking to uncover the efficient causes of things, typically through scientific methods and stopping there and not seeking after final causes. And what, why is this thing this way? Um, ultimate, what, what is the sort of ultimate meaning of, of this? You're not, you're not asked to ask this and to ask it is to go beyond the realm of reason. That, that's faith, you, you can have faith, you can think about it privately, you can pray about it, but you cannot make claims about ultimate meaning and still consider yourself to be safely within the house of, house of reason. Um, and 
in tandem with the rise of this, of this way of thinking about reason, I think Pope Benedict calls it just this narrowing of, of the scope of reason, is what he laments as the de-Hellenization of Christianity, that Christianity itself um, loses its bond with Greco-Roman thought. And so in the chapter, uh, Is God Reasonable, obviously there's that has a dual meaning that I play upon, that is, is it reasonable to believe in God, and is that God, uh, the object of your faith, a reasonable God himself? Um, in trying to, to kind of suss that out, I um, tell essentially Benedict's account of the marriage of faith and reason in late antiquity. So I, I retell that in, in my own words in a more kind of narrativistic way than, than, than uh, Ratzinger would. Um, and it's this remarkable story of um, you know, one set of people who are constantly asking, seeking after ultimate meaning, um, the Greeks. You know, why, is it, why are things the way they are? Um, why do things change? And is there something that doesn't change? So they're seeking after this. And then the Hellenistic conquest happens to bring them into contact with another people who worship a god who seems to answer those things, who says, who does, identifies himself in Exodus 3.14 as I, the I am. I am, be, I am being itself. Um, and out of that synthesis between the two, even though it's, it's uh, a synthesis born in some ways of, of tragedy for Israel, right? It comes in as a, as a result of conquest and dislocation for them, nevertheless emerges this uh, magnificent synthesis of faith and reason, um, who, which I argue finds its highest expression, its summit, its highest achievement in the mind of St. Thomas Aquinas. And then all I do is to kind of give a taste of to the reader in a very elementary way drawing, honestly, more on commentators like, like uh, Gilson and, and Joseph Pieper and, and Sertelange rather than direct sources um, or primary sources to say, here's what that would mean. Here's what it means to be able to reason about the things of God. So for example, it's possible um, to, to prove God's existence without relying on revelation. There's much more about God that you can't know with, without the benefit of revelation, but his existence, at least, you can know through revelation. Or you can, that it is, it, because it's impossible for something to be both um, uh, uh, at the same time an object of faith and an object of science or reason, that, um, uh, that the, 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 what appears like conflicts between the two really aren't. And St. Thomas re resolves that so magnificently and easily. So um, that's it. That's, that's the chapter. So it's a very kind of, you know, intro to, <laughs> intro to Gilson, intro to that Benedict account of, of, of the synthesis of faith and reason that comes about as, about a, as a result of the encounter between um, Greco-Roman and, and Jewish civilization and then a taste of how much richer a worldview is in which you can ask and answer questions with, with a degree of certainty that reason grants you about ultimate things. And, that's a, and in fact, it's a, it's a, much, um, it's a loss to, to pinch reason to such an extent that it, can't, that it can't be permitted to ask and answer questions like that. So that's the chapter. And um, I, I welcome Jay's remark, if I may call you Jay. You certainly may. 
Well, it's an honor and it's a pleasure for me to have, it's an honor and a pleasure for me to be able to, uh, to respond to Sohrab. And uh, I'm, I'm also honored to be here speaking to all of you. Thank you very much for coming. My role on this panel is to find something interesting, to pick something interesting, I should say, uh, to talk about in Sohrab Omari's chapter, Is God Reasonable? This is easy to do because the topic is fascinating and because Sohrab writes of it so well. Now, the great medieval thinker Thomas Aquinas uh, on whose writing he draws, uses sheer logical reasoning to show that God exists and that he is perfect, good, one, infinite, unchangeable, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, and some other things too, uh, including both just and merciful in all his works. With a little help from Aquinas, Sarab zeroes in mostly on two of those things, uh, not entirely, but mostly on two of those things, showing that far from being a leap in the dark, believing in God and in his goodness is eminently reasonable. Reasonable. Fancy that. I consider this tremendously important. It helps, it helps seekers and skeptics and perplexed persons get over a huge hump. Now, no single book can do everything. And an author must always be selective. The existence of God and his goodness and those other attributes I've mentioned are not all we need to know about him. From the rest of his book and from listening to Sorab last night at, the, um, at another event at the University Catholic Center, I'm pretty sure he'll agree. And so I propose using our powers of reasoning in a somewhat different way and taking them a little bit further still, as Sorab might say, prodding a little further still. Although for reasons I'll explain, I think Thomas Aquinas would still approve. Now some folks might push back against my claim that we need to know more because they think it'll be divisive. It doesn't have to be. Some might also push back because according to the chattering classes of our day, it makes no difference whether there's a God at all. And even if it does, it's enough to know that he's real and good, fine. But it isn't enough. Let me show why. In the first place, I might know of God's reality and goodness and even those other things, his, his omnipotence and so forth, and yet not know whether he is interested in us individually. I may think of him as an absentee landlord who merely wound up the physical and moral clockwork and set it going. Yes, abstractly just and merciful. Yes, aware of us, but not someone to whom we can pray. If I have no confidence that he will one day wipe the tears from the eyes of the oppressed, then the idea of doing the right thing and letting God take care of the consequences will seem futile to me. Worse than futile, I will think that I have to play God myself. And so I will often be tempted to do evil for the sake of a good result. Or I may know of God's reality and goodness, but not know, as St. Paul puts it, that God will never let his followers be tempted beyond their strength, but will always provide them with the way of escape from temptation. And if I don't know this, then I'll be likely to think that there is no way out of my moral dilemmas and my difficulties so that I'm doomed to have what some thinkers have called dirty hands. Again, suppose that I know of God's reality and goodness, but I don't know how or even whether my wrongdoing can be forgiven. Well, in that case, the moral law itself, which is supposed to be a gift, will seem to me merely a harsh accuser with a heart of rock, uh, 
I will long to drown out the accuser's voice. I may be tempted, for instance, to deny that there is even such a thing as moral right or moral wrong, or else I may be tempted to tell myself that I'm a much better person than I really am. Or yet again, suppose that I know of God's reality and goodness, but I don't know about the possibility of divine grace, divine assistance. Then I'll be unable to receive this assistance. I won't even ask for it. Perhaps I'll be able to make some progress on my own toward becoming a good person. Uh, but when I hit the wall, when I find myself doing the wrong that I don't want to do and failing to do the right that I do want to, then I will be unable to cry out for help. For I, I don't just need to be forgiven. I need to be cured. Finally, suppose I know of God's reality and goodness, but I don't know if I can know this God as the lover is known by the beloved. It's not unfaithful to confess that we're not fulfilled in this life, and the happy, clappy pretense of fulfillment is not what makes us happy. When we behold the beauties of this world, this is one of Augustine's points, when we behold the beauties of this world, our spirits soar, and yet who could deny the sweet, piercing pain of that transport? Because the greater the beauty that we see, the keener and the greater the longing for another beauty that we do not see whether or not we know its name. Well, I need to know its name. I need to know, is this longing in vain or am I entitled to divine hope so that I can be blessed in the very fact of my discontent? Now our minds but smolder. Is it possible that they might one day blaze with fire? Sorab convincingly shows that reasoning alone can demonstrate God's existence and goodness and a few other things, such as his pure actuality, showing this so attractively that large numbers of everyday people are drawn to read his arguments, I think is a fabulous accomplishment. I'm most impressed. Perhaps then Sorab will agree with me that we need to know the other things about God that I've mentioned too. And as a matter of fact, he returns to some of them in later chapters of his book. But now this does raise a serious problem. For as Thomas Aquinas agrees, a lot of these other things that we need to know are divulged to us exclusively by divine revelation. Now the whole point of revelation is that it exceeds what we could have figured out by our own reasoning. You can figure out all those things about God by your own reasoning, but these other things you can't. How can it be reasonable to submit to help from beyond human reason? I think we can answer the question. There are at least five ways in which it is reasonable to submit to divine help concerning matters in which human reason alone falls short. Reason can show that revelation is possible, necessary, likely, authentic, and I suggest even confirmed in a way. The reasoning is not like geometry. And you'll notice that I'm avoiding words like proof. These rather are what philosophers call probable arguments. Let me take each one in turn. First, since reason can demonstrate not only the goodness, but also the power of God, it's reasonable to consider revelation possible. Certainly, God can disclose himself if he chooses. He's got the power to do that. People who say that we can't know anything about God, you've heard this. 
oh, we can't know anything about God, or in fact claiming to know quite a lot, quite a lot about Him, aren't they? In particular, that either that He lacks the power to disclose Himself or that He lacks the inclination to do so. How is it that we can know these things about Him, but not know anything else about Him? It's all suspiciously arbitrary, don't you think? Second, since our own minds could never find out all we need to know about God by themselves, it is reasonable to consider revelation necessary. As I've argued, we need to know whether he consoles suffering, whether he provides a way out of temptation, whether and how wrongdoing can be forgiven, whether his assistance is possible when we hit the wall, and whether it is really possible someday to know him as we are known, not as a theorem on a blackboard. Third, since he who gave us the inclination to seek him must desire us to find him, and we can't for our own resources alone, it is reasonable to consider revelation likely. For if everything in us is merely an evolved adaptation to the environment, and I don't doubt that some are, but if everything is, then why don't we feel at home in this world? Why, when we get everything we wanted, do we ask, is this all there is? If longing for non-existent things is maladaptive, then why do we long for the vision of the face of God? Haven't there been enough millions of years to set us right? If after all this time we still long to see him, then he must have made us that way. But in that case, it would be contrary to his goodness for him not to tell us how this longing can be satisfied. Fourth, since the record of Revelation is well attested by miracles, it is reasonable to believe Revelation authentic. I can see that this point is sticky. Just because miracles upset the ordinary course of nature, it's difficult to believe in them. But consider, a God who has the power to set the courses in which things run certainly has the power to divert them from their courses, if he chooses. And it is hardly cricket for the skeptic to say, as skeptics do say, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, but then rule out extraordinary evidence. Fifth and finally, since faith is accompanied by the experience of grace, I'm appealing to experience here. It is reasonable to believe Revelation confirmed. The psalmist in the Old Testament cries, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's vivid, isn't it? You put the, the honey in your mouth. You taste it. You see that the Lord is good. Expressing the same thought in a different key, St. Paul exhorts, test everything. Hold fast what is good. How unexpected. How unexpected faith turns out to be not believing without test, but performing the test and accepting its results. There were certain things about the girl that I married that I could know from the outside. She was beautiful, she was virtuous, she was intelligent, uh, she, uh, she would be a good mother. But there were certain things that I couldn't know about her until I took the chance of trusting her and came to know her from the inside. Now that's how it is here. Thomas Aquinas says that the knowledge of God is like the knowledge that lovers have of each other because they have become second nature, he says, connatural to each other. Because of all this, I think it's reasonable to believe in help from beyond human reason. I, yet there, there is a cultural and a political difficulty with all of this. That's the fly in the ointment. And with this difficulty, I will end. However reasonable, faith is more than natural theology. 
Natural theology is great. I'm for it. But it's, faith is more. It's not provable like a theorem in geometry, nor is it something that one can gin up just by dint of moral effort. It is what the tradition calls an infused virtue, which means that it's a virtue that depends on our cooperation with the influx of divine grace. You can't get, move an inch without that, without that inpouring. So although it would be wonderful if the civic community acknowledged the truth of the faith, I don't think it's reasonable or even compatible with the faith itself for the civic community to demand faith under pain of compulsion. As St. Hilary of Poitiers declared, God does not desire an unwilling obedience. You're not being true to the faith when you force people to believe. You're being less true to the faith. That is not what the faith teaches about what God himself desires. Now, here's the rub. Faith abhors a vacuum. And unfortunately, irrational fanaticism abhors a vacuum too. Those who adhere to the faith of Thomas Aquinas are not going to demand unwilling obedience. But others who believe things bitterly hostile to that faith will certainly demand it. Consider wokeism, an angry religion which is not open to reason and not interested in making room at the table. Its creed is obey. How then can we maintain a civic order that is encouraging to faith while respecting free choice of the will and yet capable of resisting irrational faiths that demand fanatical obedience. Is there a solution? Thank you, Jay, for that for those remarks. Um, I am um, humbled by your um, uh, praise for my prose, which that's the, the you know what else can you ask for um, from from someone like yourself? And I have almost nothing substantive to uh, pick at. Um, because I agree with you that um, that it's also reasonable, um, although it's a different register of reason, it's more probabilistic, to believe in revelation. Um, that, it, that it is, in fact, possible, necessary, likely, um, authentic, and confirmed. Um, and so it, it was beyond the scope of my chapter to to go there, um, uh, uh, because I, I'm sort of arguing against, uh, not arguing against, or I'm, I'm addressing, let's say, some young person um, in their early 20s, in his or her early 20s, and uh, might be hearing stirrings of faith, that it might be experiencing the kind of infusion that you're talking about, but then as people do, will go on YouTube and encounter a lecture by Dawkins in which Dawkins, completely misunderstanding the five ways, thinks of it as a series of events in time that lead to each other. I don't know if you noticed, but in, 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 in The God Delusion, I think it is, he, he thinks of, of, of the classical proofs for God as a kind of metaphysicalized uh, Big Bang theory. Well, first this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and he he can show that you know in each of those causal links, it's sufficient to show just efficient uh, uh, causation, so that you don't need to ask um, um, you know what is the ultimate cause, right? So I'm trying to um, address such a young person and say before I get to any claims about revelation, before I get to any claims about our Lord 
um, or about the Bible, um, there is this realm in which you can just know that just by your own uh, God-given reason, you can know that God exists and that the God who, who um, uh, allows himself to be known by reason, who discloses himself um, th through the material world, uh, the natural world around you, is also likely to be a reasonable God, um, is a reasonable God. Um, and so my hope in the chapter is that then that person will begin to at least wonder about the claims of revelation, including in the later chapters, as you say, I do sort of, um, put forward some of those claims. Um, and, and I agree with you. I agree with you that the, that the, that the God who so makes himself known um, th through our reason um, would not demand compulsion in matters of faith. In fact, this is, this is the dividing line between the faith of, of, of not just St. Thomas Aquinas, but the faith of um, Pope Benedict XVI in the Regensburg Address and Islam insofar as he does criticize Islam. Although I should say again that the, the Regensburg Address is much more than a, just a critique of, of Islam, but he sees that this element of um, uh, in Islam in which the, at least the, the turn in Islamic philosophy um, f f now reaching a millennium in which um, uh, uh, God is posited as completely ineffable and other would also result in believers who do irrational things in his name or can justify monstrous acts in the name of such a God. So I, I, I agree with you about that. Um, I would say, I mean, in terms of what might a Christian social order look like, that irrational compulsion is, is ruled out. But authoritative coercion, I would, I would distinguish from, um, uh, from irrational compulsion. So what I mean is that a society could create structures in which, the, in which it is easier for that infusion to happen, to do its work, and at least some of the the threats to threats to that power of infusion, which exist as a result of the fall, are tamed a little bit. So, um, I mean, not to go into specific policy prescriptions to answer your question of what might that that look like. Um, well, I will. Like, so for for example, it it wouldn't be. Uh, it wouldn't be compulsion, but authoritative coercion, which again, I try to distinguish, for example, to create a society in which, and again, natural reason suffices, in which um, young men and women don't carry digital brothels in, around with them and their iPhones, right? Which um, is, it, it, there's just not, nothing like it, it as, as a force against the possibility of living a, a virtuous life, let alone a life in which um, um, grace and faith can do their work. So is that is that a kind of compulsion in favor of it? I would say no. I would say that's a, um, a a reasonable form of authoritative coercion, which is ultimately inevitable in every every society, including including liberal societies today, are shot through with coercion. Um, it's just a matter of who coerces, by what means, toward what ends, um, and. Um, and so I think I would I would say that to answer in answer your question. Uh, because ultimately it ended on a social and political note, how do you, what, what do we do? I think um, the, this is kind of roaming far beyond the, the is God reasonable chapter, but 
that it would not be, to my mind, a violation of the of the faith of of, a, of an Aquinas or a, or a Benedict the Sixteenth to create a society in which um, there are these embedded structures that make it easier for people um, to then accept those claims of revelation, which you so beautifully um, showed us are are um, quite reasonable, or at least probabilistically reasonable. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Very, very, very quickly. I just want to say I appreciate I appreciate the the two distinctions, the one explicit and the one implicit. I think in your remarks, first of all, it it, it seems certainly true that there is a difference between coercing somebody to do something like you don't don't go 180 miles an hour in a 30 miles an hour an hour zone, coercing somebody to do something and compelling them to accept the faith, and and I agree that that. We, that the authority of, um, of the community can be used in ways that remove certain obstacles to, uh, to faith. The other one, the other implicit distinction in that is that uh, people think of forming people and educating people as strictly a matter of, often people think of it this way, as what are you told in school, what are we, what are we told in words, but there's a shaping that takes place through our institutions. And uh, that is just as important, and I think that that's what you had your eye on there. Yeah, so I agree. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.